If you haven't uh, already turned your Bibles uh, to our passage this morning, let me encourage you to do so now. It is to Lamentations chapter 3. The passage is located in your pew Bibles in page number 688. That's from Lamentations chapter 3. We'll be doing verses 19 through 26. And so uh, I would like you to uh, please rise for the reading and the hearing of God's holy Inerrant word. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him and the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. And this is the word of God. Please be seated. I think it's very human to begin looking for something and then forget what you're looking for. Sometimes I'll get up in the middle of the evening to, to go get something or to do something in another room or somewhere else in the house. And when I actually get to that place, I, I wonder to myself, why, why am I here in the first place? I take really no time at all before you forget. I don't know if you ever experienced that. Uh, I, I am curious, um, it, just with a raise of hands, how many of you all have heard of Tennessee Williams? Okay, quite a few. Okay, all right, thank you. Uh, you know, Tennessee Williams is one of the foremost uh, playwrights in the 20th, middle of the 20th century. Um, uh, he tells of a story um, of someone, by the way, this is a spoiler alert uh, regarding a particular um, uh, play that he wrote. Uh, just want to let you know. But you can't leave. Uh, it's, a, it's a story of someone who forgot. Uh, it's a story of Jacob Brodsky, a shy Russian Jew who was... Um, uh, uh, whose father happened to own a bookstore. The older Brodsky wanted his son to go to college. The boy, on the other hand, by the way, his name is Jacob, desired nothing in life to do other than to marry Lila, his childhood sweetheart. And a couple of months after the young Brodsky uh, went to college, his father fell ill and then died. Now, so the son returned back home uh, to bury his father, and he married his love, Lila. Then the couple moved into the apartment above the bookstore, and, and Jacob Brodsky took over this management of the company. The life of uh, books fit him perfectly, but uh, it was frankly not her style. She wanted more adventure in life, and she found it, uh, she thought, when she met an agent who praised her beautiful singing voice and enticed her to come tour in Europe with a vaudeville company. Jacob Brodsky, he was overwhelmed, and he was also devastated, as you could imagine. At their parting, he reached into his pocket and gave her a key to the front door of the bookstore. And he said to her, you'd better keep this, because you'll want it someday. Your love is not so much less than mine that you can get away from it. You will come back sometime, and I will be waiting for you. She kissed him and left. To escape the pain that he felt, 
Brodsky withdrew deep into his bookstore and took to reading at some people would take for alcohol. He spoke little, he socialized little, he did little, and could most times be found at the large desk near the rear of the store, immersed in his books while he waited overwhelmed by the pain for his love to return. Nearly 15 years after they parted, at Christmas time, she returned. But when Jacob rose from reading uh, at his reading desk, that, been, uh, that he had found his place of escape for these years, he mistook the love of his life for an ordinary customer. Do you want a book? He asked. It startled her that he didn't recognize her. But she collected herself and replied, I want a book, but I've forgotten the name of it. Then she told him a story of childhood sweethearts, a story of a newly married couple who lived in an apartment above a bookstore, a story of a young, ambitious wife who left to seek a career, who enjoyed great success but could never relinquish the key her husband gave her when they parted. She told him the story she thought that would bring him to himself, but his face showed no recognition. Gradually, he realized that he had lost touch. She had realized that he had lost touch with his heart's desire, that he no longer knew the purpose of his waiting and grieving, that now all he remembered was the waiting and the grieving itself. You remember it. You must remember it, the story of Lila and Jacob. After a long, bewildered pause, he said, there is something familiar about the story. I think I've read it somewhere. It comes to me that it is something by Tolstoy. And by the way, that is the name of that show or that, that uh, play. Dropping the key, she fled the shop and Brodsky returned to his desk, to his reading, unaware that his pain blinded him to his joy and to his love. Tennessee Williams, 1931, Something by Tolstoy should remind us of how easy it is to lose sight and forget. The story is sometimes a, a sad reflection of our lives. We can be so consumed by the difficulties of life that bring about pain that we forget what we love most in life. Even more distressing is when we forget what we love most looks like, even when it's staring at us right in the face, isn't it? Well, I think that we all go through difficult times in life, don't we? Perhaps you may be going through that right now, or, or perhaps you've just come out of a very long, difficult situation in life. Our passage picks up in an extremely difficult and painful time in the life of God's people. Lamentations is penned by Jeremiah, who is known as the weeping prophet. Interestingly enough, Jeremiah 
was called to prophesy, prophesy against Israel's idolatry, calling them to repentance, and simultaneously being told that it would be fruitless as they would not obey or repent. We know the story, right? God raises up Nebuchadnezzar, and he brings about judgment against God's people for their idolatry. And through this judgment, Israel, the nation, would die, and its people would go into exile. Jeremiah writes so eloquently in this book describing the combined national pain caused by the destruction of their beloved country. The Babylonians burned the city and took what remained of the royalty, the dignitaries, and most of the survivors into captivity into Babylon itself. Jeremiah, himself a patriot, of this now defunct nation was himself impacted by the utter destruction he saw with his own eyes. And now his people were under servitude and slavery, a proud people with no home. If there was ever a situation where someone would have felt overwhelmed, I think this certainly qualifies. There are times when we feel overwhelmed, right? Our prophet Jeremiah experiences this. What does his experience have? Well, what does it have to say to us today about dealing with feelings of being overwhelmed? Well, our first point is contained in the first two verses of our text. He says, remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. And he says, my soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. These two verses reflect his inward focus. It it, it is clearly what? Upon himself. He is so self-consumed and quite frankly has been for the first two and a half chapters of this book, which only contains five, and that's all he's talked about so far. It seems as if he's clinging to his pain and finding different ways of expressing it, and frankly, quite eloquently. But nonetheless, there is no hope for him for as long as he's focused upon his pain. You know, I've seen situations that even when difficult situations change for the better, the person experiencing it doesn't change because all they can think about was the bad incident and how it made them feel. Sometimes we can be like that, can't we? Just focused on our own pain and not willing to let go sometimes. We can be so consumed by our pain that that is all we can think about all the time. Again, I don't know what your pain is or what you're currently going through. Perhaps it may have led to anxiety, depression, physical pain, relationship pain. Being a Christian doesn't make us immune to temptation to sin, right? Being a Christian doesn't make us immune to pain and suffering. In fact, the Bible tells you that at times it guarantees it by being a Christian. Nonetheless, when we are in pain, we can be consumed by the pain. That's the nature of pain, isn't it? In that moment, when we're experiencing it, 
it's all about me, isn't it? That's all we're focused on. We're concerned about our pain, and frankly, nothing else matters. Are you in that situation today? Are you and have you been consumed by your pain? Maybe you've been there for quite some time. You're not alone. Jeremiah has been fixed upon the pain of his situation. Again, we're only on the third chapter of a five-chapter book, and that's all he's talking about. When we're in this situation, how do we get through it? Well, the turning point, or perhaps the point of illumination for Jeremiah is, and this is big, he shares with us in verse 21, this I recall to my mind. Barreling through the quagmire of suffering, depression, and pain comes through a breakthrough thought that will change things for him. In the second half of the verse, he says, therefore I have hope. It is because of this thought that he now has hope. I think it's been rightly assessed that without hope, we as human beings will spiral into sadness, depression, and at times consider suicide. Certainly, Jeremiah was depressed. You know, sometimes we are depressed and yet slog along in life not even recognizing sometimes that we're even depressed. Now, I'm not talking about folks who have chemical imbalance that may be corrected by by proper medication. I'm talking about circumstances in life that brings about some sort of melancholy or sadness in our lives. And depression can be mild, and we can still function in society, can't we? But have no joy in our hearts. I think Jacob Brodsky was there, and so was Jeremiah. One thing that, that all forms of depression have in common is that they are sparked and nursed by our lack of hope. But Jeremiah has a breakthrough moment. It is when he recalls something to his mind which causes him to have the antidote to depression and being overwhelmed. What is this great hope, you may ask? Verse 22 tells us, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. The way out of being overwhelmed is to realize that it's not about you. It's all about God. Going back a couple of verses, he says in verse 18, So I say, my endurance has perished, so, my, so has my hope from the Lord. Back then in verse 18, he had lost hope. Not in the Lord's ability to help, but the situation. This is important. His hopes and expectations of what he wanted to have happen had to be given up. The people were not interested in repenting. They were not interested in returning to the Lord. They had experienced the consequences of their sins. 
Whatever his expectations were of God and his plans for Israel, they had to be given up, abandoned, and instead replaced by not what God could do, what God should do, or what God could do, or even what God will do in the future. Instead, he had to grab hold of God's character. He had to grab hold of God's character. Who God is. You know, Jeremy was told that he would call Israel to repent, but that it would be fruitless. Maybe Jeremiah, I think, maybe secretly harbored hopes that Israel would truly repent. Perhaps the secret hope was inflamed by some of King Hezekiah's reforms, his political reforms and religious reforms, which of course were short-lived. But nonetheless, Jeremiah might have thought that God would have indeed saved his nation against from idolatry. But in verse 18, he has given up hope. We saw that, right? But this giving up hope has to give way to something that is real, a real understanding of God. Not some made-up false expectations of where you think you should be or where others in your life should be or where God should be doing for you. It is when we give up false expectations that at least can give us hope to look at our great God's character and perhaps capture a proper and renewed glimpse of his expectations of us. Do you, Christian, do do you have false expectations? Do, Do you know that you have false expectations? and yet you're clinging on to them? It is when Jeremiah took the focus off of himself and made God the focus of his soul that helped him to have hope. Exactly what is it about God that gave Jeremiah hope? It was not a detailed promise of a future that's filled with milk and honey, was it? really was a focus on God himself. Let's unpack this. God's willingness to begin fresh again, even after a season of sin in our lives, even sin followed by judgment, is not in doubt. The words used here for loving kindness and compassion or mercy are to be understood in the light of God's covenant loving kindness and covenant love for you. Despite the fact that you and I may be faithless, just as the people of God were in Jeremiah's time, God is faithful because he is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. He keeps his promises to us even when we don't keep our promises to him. It is because Jeremiah knows that God is forgiving God who is prepared to take us back into his loving bosom that gives Jeremiah a hope for the future as well as the present. For Jeremiah, 
The hope is not in running water, refrigeration, a several-figured account in the bank, a fancy automobile, extravagant jewelry, a loving spouse, and perfect children who will never need braces. The thing that changes everything for Jeremiah is God's unyielding and really unbelievable preparedness to reestablish a warm and loving relationship with all of his people who are truly contrite in heart. Do you think that you are so far gone in your sins that God would never take you back? God's loving kindness never ceases. His compassions never fail. If you have them, perhaps today is the day you give up your false expectations that have caused you melancholy, depression, frustration, and anger. Perhaps today is the day that you remember so that you may have hope again. You want to talk about a 180, a complete turnaround. He continues in verse 23. Now that he has clarity, he sees that the Lord's love and compassion are daily. All along, he's been loving and kind to Jeremiah. Even in the midst of suffering, and perhaps for some of us, and I've experienced this, his kindness is suffering. There's no one that knows you better than God, right? He knows your temperament, he knows your talents, your sinful proclivities, everything about you. And because he knows you so well, he will not give you things that he knows will only be detrimental to you in the long run. And yes, he will raise the temperature in your life so he can kill off bad desires from you. And it hurts, but it's good for you. It's good for me. It's good for us when he does that. God's faithfulness to you is all the time. God's love towards you is all the time. God's compassion towards you is all the time. It never ceases. The focus is not about you and your pain. It's about God and his love for you. Don't you see that it needs to be all about God. This takes us neatly to our third point. It's all about me being God's. Jeremiah proclaims that the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I have hope in him. Now, in order to have an understanding of what this portion means, uh, we look at a passage like Numbers 18.20, which reads, And the Lord said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in the land. Neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. 
Each of the tribes was given a portion of land, a tract of land, except one, and that were the Levites. And they were told that, that he himself, God himself, was their portion, their inheritance. Right? I mean, we know people, like, or maybe we ourselves have received an inheritance, right? Well, what did this person get? Oh, uh, you know, I hope I get the yacht. Uh, I hope I get, you know, whatever it might be. Everybody's like looking for it and, and towards an inheritance that is my quote-unquote birthright or whatever has been bequeathed to me. But we see that in, in Scripture, it says that God is your portion. It means that God is what you get. God is your inheritance. So in this life, God is what you get. The result of all of this is that Jeremiah says, Jeremiah says in verse 24, therefore, I have hope. Hmm. He does not have as his inheritance some tract of land. Hey, he's sitting there. And he's seen like plumes of smoke coming up. There is no land. No one's got any land. God wants him to know that he is his inheritance. That is what he is to find in his joy and in his satisfaction. God, Jesus, is your inheritance. That is what you are to find in your joy. Our great reward is God himself. So let me ask you a question. When you got God, what else could you possibly need to have joy and fulfillment in this life? The unbeliever, the reprobate, does not have God as his or her portion. That is why they are called worldly. They pursue the things of this world to find fulfillment and purpose and pleasure because their great reward is not God. That is why they go from one pleasure to another, sometimes deeper and deeper, into a sinful pleasure to find fleeting satisfaction. Jeremiah realizes that the land which his eyes have been gazing upon, the temple which was destroyed, the city gates and walls were burned down, were things that were fleeting. They were in comparison to his true portion, nothing. In fact, he saw them in their true estate, breakable, temporary, worthless, able to be burned up. All bring about to great loss. What a great vision. What a great illustration for us, right? All the things that we pursue, that we think will give us pleasure and, and satisfaction in life. Just imagine it as looking across a valley and, and, and the whole city burned up in ashes, worthless. At one time seemed so valuable. Won't you look at life that way? All those things that you pursue, that you think will give you satisfaction, that they're all 
just, in the end, worthless. There's no substance to them, and that you will not be able to keep them throughout all eternity. Except your true inheritance, you will have throughout all of eternity. Not an inanimate object that will not love you back, but someone who has proven that he loves you and will continue to love you throughout all of eternity. Now there's something you can hold on to. There's something really valuable there that you can find satisfaction that carries you throughout all of this life and certainly throughout of all eternity. And that's Jesus himself. Isn't it true, Christians, about all these possessions and human, even human relationships? All those things that we look to for satisfaction and pleasure can only be fleeting and only temporary. Do you live your life reminding yourself that God is your portion? Now think about this. If you recognize this and live your life daily with this realization, it will be revolutionary. It will fill your life with hope, as it did for Jeremiah. All those things that people and, and maybe you're striving for really are nothing in comparison to the true treasure who is Christ. What have you substituted in your life for Christ? And let me ask you, was it really worth it? I think we'll probably end up saying no. Perhaps it was momentary and will continue to be momentary. But no, it's not really worth it. Come back to this realization. Christ is the portion of your life. He is your inheritance. The unbeliever, for a time, gets gets this world as we see it, and the stuff in it. But when they die, God is not their portion. But when you die, you will enjoy, in fullness, your inheritance, Christ himself. However, you don't have to wait to die to enjoy Christ now. The Bible tells us that we are already in Christ. We already have access to him. He is already guiding and providing for us and that we can have an intimate fellowship with him even now, every day, every moment. So you see, the way out is about realizing and reminding ourselves that it's all about already being in Christ. Now, verse 25 doesn't begin with, it is good for those who wait on him, but instead, it is, God is good to those who wait on the Lord. And so what clarification does Jeremiah provide here? In the Hebrew poetic style, the second stanza enlightens us. It says, the Lord is good to those who seek him out. Not not to those who are focused upon themselves. You see? This is part of his great discovery that helps him to extricate himself from the dilemma of his depression and melancholy. And when we talk about seeking, we're not talking here about uh, the unbeliever because the Bible clearly teaches us that fallen man cannot and will not seek out God. 
We see this all throughout the scriptures, and you can read that in Psalm 14. The seeking out after God can only be done by those that are already in Christ, those who are already in a relationship with him. And Jeremiah is urging the remnant community, and now you, to seek out after God. God is good to those who seek him out. For when you find him, your blessing, you will be joyous. You will have peace. And you will have contentment that comes from being in a right relationship with God. So then what does it mean to seek out and wait upon the Lord silently? Now this brings us all the way back, right? When we're suffering, we're making all sorts of noise. Sometimes it's yelling. (laughs) We're complaining, aren't we, sometimes? We're complaining to our, our loved ones, the world. Anyone who will listen to us. When we're voicing our pain, one thing that we're not doing is what? Listening. Silently. As I've pointed out before, pain, is in, pain in itself is not a bad thing. It can be a good thing. Pain tells us something is wrong and that we need to address it. But when we're not silent and contemplating our pain, we cannot determine if in fact the pain was self-inflicted, if it's due to our own hands, or, or God is bringing trials or discipline into our lives for our spiritual growth. See, at this point in the text, Jeremiah is looking back at his discovery. He was able to have relief from his suffering because he took the time to be silent and consider his plight. Consider, perhaps, his wrong expectations in life and concluded that he needed to change his perspective and focus upon God's character. You see, when we're silent and waiting upon the Lord, seeking the Lord, we too may be reminded of this wonderful reality. Because when we're focused upon ourselves, we're not thinking that way. We're not thinking of Christ. So in conclusion, we are to consider our situation, learn from it, grow from it, and wait upon the Lord to save us from difficult circumstances in his own way, not one that we have concocted in our own mind on our own timetable. And we are to remind ourselves that God is our loving and compassionate Father who will never fail to truly provide the things that we need in his great wisdom. What wonderful and comforting words to know that we have a God who loves us all the time. His mercies towards us are all the time. And whenever we are ready to repent of our sin, he is ready all the time. What wonderful words. What wonderful God we serve. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We love you. We ask you that you help us to love you more and more. Help us to see you as you truly are, as our great God, as our Father, as our friend, the one 
who gives us what we need when we need it. The one who loves us so much that he is prepared to say no because he loves us and wants the best for us. Help us, we pray, Heavenly Father. Send your Holy Spirit so that we, we may be not focused upon ourselves, but rather focused upon you and focused upon the joy that we have in you, even in and through the pain and the pains of life.